the word. Uh, so that's why we stand when we read. Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. I always think it's a good idea to just be really transparent. And if I'm being totally transparent this morning, I'm carrying some nerves about this talk. And I've been preaching almost 20 years, and yet somehow I'm still nervous uh, a lot of the times when I'm up here preaching. And I think some of those nerves are just coming from what I'm about to share with you, which I'm extremely excited about. In fact, I think they're from God's Spirit for us. Um, but I just like am feeling a little bit more kind of activated and like I'm just noticing my anxious thoughts right now. So if it's okay with you guys, I thought we could just start with a rhythm of breath prayer just to kind of settle ourselves down, come back to center, even if it's just for me. Let's do that. So if, it, if it's comfortable for you or if you are um, okay doing this, just hold out your hands in front of you like you're about to receive a gift from the Lord. And let's just begin with a breath in and exhale. Inhale one more time and exhale. For me, it's really helpful to just think about the prayer from the Holy Spirit in Revelation that just says, come. The Spirit says, come. And then the bride, which is us, the church, we join in with the Spirit's prayer. We say, yes, come, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, I know what you have put on my heart to share with our church today. And I really believe that you have something very specific for us that I'm really looking forward to. But way more important than my words are what's coming from your heart, what's coming from your mouth. And you have said that you've come to inhabit your church. And there's something inherently powerful about this sort of really analog experience. Oh, there's no screens in front of us, there's no ads anywhere. We're just a, a family of believers in this room turning our attention ultimately to you. So I pray in whatever way possible that you would just get me out of the way of what you are wanting to do in this gathering. And would you form us deeply from the heart, even if we only retain eight to 15% of what's about to be shared. Lord, I pray that what we would not do is somehow leave behind your presence. I pray that you would awaken us, awaken your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Uh, that helped. <laughs> um, in 10 days, you guys, we have uh, the, the beginning of our second annual 24-7 prayer room. 
Starting right back here. Yes, thank you for the whoops. There were a few whoops last service, a few whoops this service. I love it. Um, and this is a huge part of our ministry here. In fact, um, I was um, listening to a teaching this week, and I heard this line that I actually really, really resonate with, which is, it, prayer is not a ministry of the church, it's the ministry of the church. In other words, that we are meant to give God our whole hearts and to fully focus on him. And so um, I just wanted you guys to know that uh, we are pressing into this ethos, into this culture of seeking God as a matter of first importance in our life. We do that through all kinds of different ways. The prayer room is one of the main ways, and it's about to start. Already, we announced it last week, and already um, about a third of the hours in the first few weeks are already taken. So I would highly encourage that uh, you go onto the website right on the homepage, click on the banner at the very top of the screen, and you will find many different times where you can come and pray and seek God with us communally for a spiritual awakening in our time. And so I felt really compelled this morning to just kind of tell you the origins of the 24-7 prayer room for us at Riverbend in our story. It's a movement that's worldwide, but the Lord invited us into it. I want you to know some of the origins of the story. So um, at 17 years old is when I came to faith in Jesus, and I had been a part of some really great churches. My parents were uh, really great parents. I went to a Christian school and everything else, but somehow I had gotten the wrong idea about the gospel, and I had internalized what I would just call now a quasi-Christian gospel, which is I can basically have most of my life that is for me, all my dreams, all my ambitions, everything that I hope and want for my life, and then just add a little bit of Jesus to that. And uh, I didn't see the problem with that at the time, and it wasn't that anyone was doing a bad job messaging the gospel to me, it's just I was hearing what I wanted to hear. I had come up in this very consumeristic society, and that was what I was hearing. And through a series of events, the Lord just really got a hold of me at 17 and totally flipped the script on me. And the thing that I remember most from that sort of period of time was dusting off my Bible, which I had probably read a couple of times at that point, even at 17 years old. And I remember the words of Jesus jumping off the page at me. He says, he who seeks to find his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I just remember that being such a compelling new idea for me at the time. That God wasn't interested in just endorsing and blessing what I had in mind for my life. But he actually wanted to show me a much better way that I wasn't really prepared for, knew how to ask for even. And so I remember you know, laying down my dreams, the things that I hoped for, the things that I wanted in my life on the altar. And just saying, you know what, God? These were my ideas. What are yours? What do you want for my life? And this was a major, major turning point for me. And uh, again, 17 years old, and it's around that time that I realized as I started my relationship with Jesus that I had been asking all of the wrong questions. All the questions I've been asking my entire life was, what do you want to do? What are your passions? What are your gifts? What are the things you love? Do that. Chart a course for yourself. Plan out your two and five year and 10 year goals, what do you wanna do? And it wasn't until this point in my life where I heard the words of Jesus and really believed in them that I realized that I actually was a much different question. 
The real question is, what do you have, God? Well, like, what do you want for my life? Not what do I have in mind, but what do you have in mind for my life? And I realized at the time that this was a really big question. I had no framework, no way to really truly answer. I just, did, I just had a lot of questions, not a lot of answers. And so instead of doing what I had intended to do, which was I was a swimmer, so I thought I would just go to some uh, D1 swimming school on the West Coast and swim and study business or something like that, I decided instead... Uh, to go to this like gap year Bible college on the island of Maui. And it was a complete like, like left turn, just way out of left field for me. And many of you have heard a bunch of my stories uh, from the Maui days. And it was extremely, I mean, so formative to me in my life for so many different reasons. Um, and I began to explore that question. I know what I would do if I was the king of this story. I know what I would do if I was the protagonist, but I'm not. I'm not. He is, and it's about what he wants for my life. And uh, so it was around this time uh, that when I moved to Maui, I, I had no money. Uh, we didn't have Wi-Fi in our condo because we couldn't afford it. And we were basically just living off of whatever we could catch in the sea <laughs> uh, through spearfishing and like I don't know, like 100 bucks that we pulled together and went to Costco. It was like really brutal. And so we didn't, we just didn't have, we didn't have much and we didn't have TV or internet or anything like that. So at night, there was really not a whole lot for me to do. And so I just um, decided that day, the first day that I landed on Maui, that I would just, I've heard these great things about Maui sunsets. Why don't I just walk down to the beach? It was two blocks away and just watch the sun go down. And when I did, I had this incredible moment with God. Obviously, it's a beautiful setting. Obviously, people pay thousands of dollars just for the privilege to stand on one of those beaches. Um, but I had a genuine experience with God where it felt like there was like a new energy, a new vitality, a new closeness and intimacy and communion with God that I had not experienced before. And it stirred in me in a really big way. And I made a decision right then and there that I was going to spend every night that I had on Maui going to that same spot, watching the sun go down, and seeking God's face in prayer. Sometimes that was like a 20-minute thing. Other times it would be many, many hours where I would just be sitting there with the Lord. And that, my friends, is where I fell in love with Jesus. It was on that beach on Maui. I learned about connecting with him and his presence. And it's where that sort of life verse, you've heard me repeat dozens of times if you've been here a few years from Psalm 27 where King David says, one thing I have asked for and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and that I may meditate in his temple. And I realized that that was the answer to that question. The answer to the question, what, what does God want for my life? One thing, go after his heart, go after him. He's made up the distance between heaven and earth by go, sending Jesus to go to the cross. And he's saying intimacy with me is possible. Closeness with me is possible. The presence of God is here with us. This is your one thing. And of course, there's so much else that kind of fills in the gaps around life. But if there's one trajectory for my life, and I would argue for the life of anyone who follows after Jesus, it's seeking after God and his presence. 
And so that was the first thing that the Lord really showed me um, was before he answered any question about calling and what I would spend the majority of my days doing here on earth, he showed me he just wanted me to become a man of prayer, a person of prayer. And I'm such a novice. I mean, I'm almost 20 years in, but still very much a novice, I would consider myself. But this is, I think, who I am becoming. I hope I can say that with true sincerity, that I am becoming a man of prayer. And then the second thing that the Lord taught me, if this is the one thing that he has, like, he has set me apart for, then really it's not just for me. It's actually for anyone who he's entrusted to me anyone in my circle, anyone around me, what the Lord has actually called me to do, and I think by extension Riverbend, is to like learn from God himself in prayer how to teach others to experience God in the exact same way. And more or less, that's exactly what I've been doing all this time. Several years of school, 50, 60 books, lots of mentors, lots of conferences, lots of like teachings and all of that is essentially learning from God how do we really seek him the Lord in prayer again many years of practice in still a novice but feeling like this is very much the trajectory the Lord has us on so that was the second sort of shift if you will or the thing that God revealed and then as Grace and I and many of you helped us plant the that what has now become Riverbend. Um, there has been another kind of burning passion that is starting to rise up in us for the last several years, and now you are a part of the fruit of that, is that not only does the Lord want us to have our own very compelling private lives of prayer, but the Lord is actually calling our community to be a community that is seeking God together for the renewal of Bend. And what God is asking us to do, I think this is the calling of this church, is to answer his call to be a church contending for the next great awakening here in the Western United States. And we believe that it's just time for another Jesus movement where the power and fame of Jesus, the glory of Jesus spreads, not just in our city, but in our region and across the United States. And we believe the only way that that's possible is through contending in prayer. And so I, I hope you have a vital prayer life, individual prayer life, I hope you do. But what we are being called into next is a movement of prayer where you and I and all of us come together and put the little embers or the log that is on fire and together put it all together. Together in the prayer room to seek God's face together. And this is, again, not a ministry of the church. We believe this is the ministry of the church. Like King David, the one thing we want, God, is for you to have our hearts and for you to know it and for us to have yours. That is the one thing. So what's been so beautiful is this last year, we, uh, most of you know, I've been telling and retelling this story, but uh, we launched the prayer room 24-7 for 40 straight days through Lent, praying through uh, uh, spiritual awakening and contending for God to move in our time uh, right in this room behind me. And it went from, uh, you know, kind of mild expectation, modest expectation to what I would describe as the beginnings, the rumblings of what I had always hoped for on that little beach on Maui when I was 19 years old. And what that was, was not just Grace and I, not just a few elders and staff, 
but a growing number of you going, whoa, there's more to the presence of God than I had first thought. Turns out he's bigger. Turns out he's more powerful. Turns out he's got a lot more he wants to do than just kind of like lead us through life in this sort of, you know, American dream style, you know, white picket fence sort of American dream. He wants to turn the world upside down. He wants to bring his kingdom here. He wants to reunite heaven and earth. He wants to pour his spirit out. He wants to prophesy. He wants to send miracles. He wants the fame and glory of Christ to spread in our region. And there was, so there was like a significant cultural disruption that began to take place right from within our community this time last year. And we believe that we've only scratched the surface of that and uh, we've got many, many more years. If I gave you the five-year thing of what we're planning, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. You probably hyperventilate. <laughs> but, but the dream is to keep pressing in because there's always more of him. So anyways, um, there are so many stories that have come out of the prayer room. And before we launch into the prayer room this year, I just want to share a few stories of what God has done uh, just in the past year. So I invited a couple of friends today to give their testimony of what God did in their life through their story in our prayer room. So would you guys put it together, uh, please, for Lauren Vanaski and Grace Padilla. Come on. All right, here you are, Grace. Oh, there's two mics, one for each of you. Perfect. Okay, so um, so both of these women spent, uh, I, I look back on our calendar from last year, and you guys spent like an hour a day, a couple hours a day, each of you in the prayer room, and you both told me privately how much God worked and moved in your life through it. So uh, would you please start with you, Grace? Just tell us, what did you experience? What did God teach you uh, through the prayer room last year? Yeah, um, with the prayer room, it just, I saw so many good things and heard so many good things of um, just God's goodness um, that came from it and seeking after him. Um, the first thing that came to mind that um, was just the first time I ever even went to the prayer room. I had no idea what I was walking into, what to expect. And um, I just was at a point in my faith where I just like, I wasn't very consistent in seeking after the Lord and um, in that secret place. And um, so I just felt the nudge and um, the spirit just move me to, to just step out in faith and go. And um, the first time I went, I walked through the room and was just met by the presence of the Lord, just the overwhelming peace, the overwhelming joy. And I couldn't do anything but fall on my knees and worship. Um, and it just blew my mind that God was so eager, like it was an eagerness to just meet with me there. And, um, and I just knew I wanted more. And so <laughs> I, I became addicted to, <laughs> like, to just seek after the Lord. And um, the Spirit revealed it to me as looking at prayer like being a root system of a tree. Um, that a tree could look tall and strong on the outside, but if its roots are shallow um, and not deep into the earth or its foundation, um, that one bad storm is just going to knock that tree over. And um, prayer is what assures us that our roots run deep and are grounded in what is our, not only our foundation, but um, will save us in a storm and is life-giving and it ultimately sustains us. And um, 
Yeah, and so the verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 13 and 14 became so real to me that it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And that just became a promise that every time I went into the room, I was expectant to meet with the Lord, that no matter where I was at that day or what I was facing, that even if it was just a touch of heaven of just his peace and his presence, that that's all I needed. And um, yeah, <laughs> and um, I can testify even just throughout this year of just what he's done and um, the prayers that he's answered in my own family and for my husband and I. And um, I can just say that he loves you and cares for you, and most importantly, he hears you even when it seems he doesn't hear you. Um, the last thing that I wanted to share was um, towards the end of Lent, uh, in the last few times I was in the prayer room, I asked the Lord, what are your people hungry for? And he answered a couple different ways, but uh, the first thing he said was, um, hearts on fire, and I was just like, whoa, like, <laughs> um, and this was the vision he gave me, was just him simply offering a heart on fire for him, and us just simply receiving, and I, um, just, yeah, the simplicity of receiving was just what I discovered in the prayer room, and seeking after him, and yeah, and it was crazy because this year we started a fellowship of Burning Hearts, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it was like the same time almost last year, that, and now it's linked to the same time this year, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I started talking about this series of Fellowship of Burning Hearts, Grace texted me this photo, and I was like, oh, my word, that's amazing. And she was like, yeah, I, I'm like a year ahead of you, man. <laughs> I was so proud of that title that I came up with, too, but... You, it, I, credit goes to you and the Holy Spirit, obviously, but um, oh, I love that so much. I, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much, Grace. Um, Lauren, similar question. What did you experience when you went into the prayer room, and how did it change your life? I really thought second time around today I would yeah, relax, yeah. but I'm yeah. very nervous. Um, the call from the church for the prayer room was something that was just you know, out of obedience, right? We serve here. Of course, yeah, sounds exciting. I'll do it. And um, it was also pretty immediate for me as well, the feeling of, oh, wait, something different is happening in this room. And um, lucky or unlucky for me, around the time that the prayer room started, I was faced with some super painful um, truths about things happening in my life. And so it wrecked any agenda that I even could have had about what was going to be happening in there and brought me to a very raw place. And turns out that's what I needed because, you know, growing up in my household and what a lot of you maybe have experienced in your life is this idea that you are very emotional. So you go to your room and you put yourself together and then you come out and you participate with the family and in life. And the reality is what prayer often looks like is us just gutted and raw and God being like, yeah, great, stay here, be ugly, do whatever you need to do. Like, I'm here. There's not a rush. You don't need to put yourself together. You don't need to get cleaned up. And 
yeah, the, the phrase that I came to for that is, or that the Lord blessed me for with that is, um, you can't have intimacy without honesty. Yeah. And so how could you ever truly actually experience that level of intimacy with the Lord if you're not honest about exactly where you're at? Yeah. Sometimes you don't even know where you're at, but yeah. <laughs> you'll find it along the way. Um, and that desire just grew and grew and grew of so many nights in there, just on my knees sobbing. And sometimes you can't formulate thoughts when you're in pain. Sometimes there's just nothing other than your feelings, and that's okay. And that I'd like to say from there, life was like beautiful and sunshiny and all of these things got better. Actually, they got like dramatically worse and my <laughs> world flipped upside down and I walked into the deepest pain and suffering that I've ever experienced. Um, and I remember waking up a morning in August when it felt like my life had kind of blown up in my face and there was evil all around me and just knowing that I was equipped and that didn't make me feel like good. <laughs> I was terrified at the road I had to walk ahead, like suffering and grief there just all over the place. And I know the Lord would have still worked something beautiful out of that and been with me along the way, but I actually don't know how I would have walked through what the rest of the year was like if I hadn't had the preparation and the secure attachment to the Lord. Yeah. And so that's my encouragement for all of you is we don't have control over our lives. We love to think that we do. There's a phrase in our B&B &B book that said like, what makes you feel like you have a sense of control? <laughs> that's yeah. all it ever is. But we can have control over the time that we spend with him and the level of security that we have to him. And so when you think about your lives and the things that you hold dearest and the things that are most important, um, you actually have control over how you're gonna be able to respond to whatever life throws at you. And that's gonna come from the secure attachment that you have to the Lord. And so whether you're in the best season of your life possible or the worst, like if you're in the best, look at it as a time to go in there and praise him for the gifts that he's given you and the promises that he's fulfilled. And if you're in the worst place ever, like that's great too. I'm sorry that you're there, but there's a place for you there. Whether you're rejoicing or you're suffering, there's a place for you there. Um, I'm gonna stop rambling. That's what I wanted to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it together for Grace and Lauren, you guys. Thank you so, so much. If, if you want to chat more about what the experience was like for them, just go find them after the gatherings. They're both super friendly people. I'm sure they'd love to talk with you more. Um, and you're going to hear some more stories over the next month as well, just as a way of testifying to what God is doing and what is possible when we sit aside hours to pray, and not just pray privately, but to pray communally. So uh, with the time that we have left, I just want to address why I think this is such an urgent thing right now. Like right now on our website, there are a bunch of 3 a.m. slots in the middle of the night that we are like no ifs, ands, buts about it, encouraging some of you to get out of bed and drive here and, and spend an hour in that room contending and asking God 
for a great awakening and seeking his face like those women just described to you. Why? Why would we, it's a fair question. Why would we challenge you to do that? Why would we invite you to do that? And why would we decide that this is not just like a thing for the church, but really the main ministry of the church? How is that possible? Well, I think it's uh, many, many reasons. You've heard me give some of those reasons, but uh, I want to just introduce a metaphor to you. Um, many of you probably already know this, but uh, the population of some European countries and countries like China are in a state of irreversible decline. And by that I mean that in the 20th century, they just did not reproduce enough to sustain their culture. Meaning that within a few decades, China just will not be able to recover from the fact that this generation at the turn of the 20th and 21st century just did not have enough children to sustain their culture. And the same is true of a lot of European countries. In fact, I was reading an article this week about Italy, how Italy is struggling to just have enough workers right now to like staff restaurants and cafes because most people who are Italian, who live in Italy, are past retirement age. And so already we're beginning to experience the effects of this. And within a decade or two, this problem is going to become painfully, painfully obvious. Now, that's a metaphor to, I think, what's going on in the Western church. People in America, this is a statistic, you may not be feeling this reality yet, but a statistic that is undeniably true is that Americans are deconverting from Christianity by a million people per year. A million people per year are deconverting from Christianity. So to give you a, a sense of what that means, that means like the institutions that uh, train pe people like me, ministers, pastors, uh, missionaries, places like that, within a couple of decades, they just won't have anybody enrolling. And those schools and those institutions and those ministries and those organizations will just shut down. Again, we're not necessarily seeing that yet. Like we're rubbing shoulders with lots of people. Some of you are like new to the faith and everything else, which is wonderful. It's amazing. The reality is that that is what's happening. And we have, we have run out of time to reverse that trend. I'll give you an example. There is a school that repeatedly reaches out to me and says, hey, listen, we've got a $100 million endowment, free tuition for people who want to train to become a pastor, and we got no takers. No one's taking us. It's like a, a Bible college that's been around for almost 200 years. And they are, they've gotten an endowment fund, dollars upon dollars upon dollars, to go towards pastors in training, and they don't got anybody for free. So this is, this is be, and, and we're just, that's just the front edge of that. In the coming decades, this is going to become a bigger and bigger problem. So we are out of time. And let me tell you, human excellence is not nearly enough, not nearly compelling enough to reverse this trend. Like, it doesn't matter how many times people re release the chosen, you know, as many enthusiastic, amazing, incredible preachers come down the pike, amazing worship leaders and musicians and everything else. It's like, we need all of it. We need all of your talents and gifts and the Lord wants to use it all. But no amount of expertise and talent and resource is going to be able to reverse this trend. We are out of time. 
So that, what that leaves, uh, it's like, yeah, you didn't come to church to be, be depressed. I'm sorry. Um, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. We now have a choice. I think it's a pretty simple binary choice. We have the choice where we can simply analyze and, uh, you know, be depressed over the decline of the church, hoping that like the Church of Africa or the Church of South America will come and evangelize our grandkids, which they're already starting to do, by the way. They're already starting to send missionaries to the United States. Thank the Lord they're already doing that. Or the other option that we have is to pray for awakening. That's the other option. We can, what is impossible with all of our resources, doesn't matter, you could be really well resourced. You could be really well resourced. But apart from a move of the Holy Spirit, there is no reversing this trend. And yet, you know, what we'll find is that throughout history, there have been awakening after awakening after awakening that have shaped history, not just the history of the church, but actually the history of America and the history of the world. For example, historians attribute the second great awakening to like the tipping point in the abolition of slavery, both here in the United States and in uh, the UK. You also have uh, many other things that are attributed to the Second Great Awakening. It was literally the most influential movement of the entire 19th century. Uh, 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 Finney and a band of praying people, things like the YMCA, countless colleges and universities, these sort of the, the backbone of the American institution of the church. Um, you can trace back to the Second Great Awakening, uh, the American Bible Society, and all kinds of other things that we all grew up in. Um, came from, has its roots in the Second Great Awakening and even prior to that, the First Great Awakening and um, some of the other awakenings like the Hebridean, or excuse me, the, um, the, the, the Moravian Revival and things like that. So awakening is something that's so beautiful. It's vast, it's glorious, it's captivating, it's incredible, and we long for it. And the church has this sort of built in. He's giving, like you just saw from Lauren and Grace, he's giving his prophets like a, like a caution flag, like he wants to reanimate, he wants to self-correct the Christian movement by giving us warnings by the Spirit. Hey, listen, we need to pray. We need to seek the Lord's face. We need to cry out for him to move with power. And Christian history is, in so many different ways, is just a story and a reoccurring story of awakening after awakening after awakening. And we love it. We yearn for it. We need it desperately. And more every day in our culture, in our churches, in our families, in ourselves, we just long for this. I know that there's a growing sense here in this body that that's exactly what we need. And we have a soft spot for this, a longing for this. Uh, but how does it actually take place? How do we actually sow for a great awakening? Where does that come from? Where does awakening start? How does it actually work? Well, there's a man by the name of David Thomas, who's a PhD in church history. And he studied uh, for six years, he studied patterns on prayer preceding revival movements throughout history. Six years studying prayer movements that preceded revival. This is my kind of guy, okay? And um, as a part of his research, he visited the surviving members of the Hebridean revival in Northern Scotland. This was like the, the last real awakening um, 
uh, in Western society, there's a lot going on in like the 1040 window, but in Western society, the Hebridean revival was like the last recorded one in Western society. It was uh, late 40s and early 1950s where um, if you, there were people, there were stories of people, the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit was being poured out in such a way that as people were simply sailing by the Northern Isles of Scotland, that they, their hearts would be torn and that they would come to their knees and that they would confess their sin and that they would declare that Jesus is Lord on a boat passing by the islands, which I just absolutely love that. And so he, so um, David Thomas, uh, he, he, he writes about this in, in his book. It says, he, this is what he says. He says, tears still flowed freely as these men and women now in their 80s recalled what it was like when God moved among the people. I could go on and on about the miraculous stories that they told me, but was it Duncan Campbell's preaching, I asked them. He was sort of the main sort of preacher in that revival. Was it a certain method? Yes, these were important, they explained, but they described something more essential. A kind of spiritual posture found among some who were the catalytic core. A spirit of urgency and audacity, an attitude of brokenness and desperation, a manner of prayer that could be daring and agonizing. And these friends in the Hebrides called it travailing prayer, like the Holy Spirit groaning through them, they said, like a woman travailing in labor, like Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 as if in the pangs of childbirth that Christ may be formed in you. I love that. And then he concludes in this way. He says, ever since I looked into the eyes of those people who once saw what we so passionately wanted to see, I've come to believe that the true seedbed of awakening is the plowed up hearts of men and women willing to receive this gift of travail or travailing prayer. Now, this, friends, is what I believe is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about prayer. This is the kind of prayer that the scriptures describe. Let me give you a very quick example of what I'm talking about. For example, in Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. I've complained for years that the Western church hasn't been producing many songs of joy. And I wonder if it's because we haven't been sowing in tears and agonizing over the deconversion of our society. And then, for example, in Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel cried out to God. They groaned in their slavery and they cried out to God. Hannah, who was Samuel's mother, prayed like this. When people saw her praying in the temple, they thought that she was drunk. And she said this in Samuel 1.15, I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Hezekiah, one of the kings of Israel, was desperate. And the scripture says that in the temple, he spread it all out before the Lord in the temple. Jehoshaphat, another king of Israel, prayed that we have no power to face this vast enemy, but our eyes are fixed on you. Nehemiah, in a, in a day of great spiritual poverty in Israel, he sat down and wept, Nehemiah 1.4. And then the scripture tells us that he fasted and he prayed for days for the salvation of Israel. The people of the prophets, 
Isaiah 60, 62 verse 7 says, give God no rest. Give God no rest. Keep going after him in prayer. Zechariah 8, 21, go speedily pray to the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. Joel, Joel, another prophet, in another day of great spiritual poverty in Israel, he says this. He says the priest wept between the portico and the altar because of the lack of the glory of God that was being experienced in the temple. Elijah climbed up Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. 1 Kings 18, verse 42. Some scholars say that that is actually a reference to taking the position of a woman in labor, praying and grieving and contending for his generation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3 says that he turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition for the salvation of Jerusalem. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, Psalm 119 says, for your law is not obeyed. Day and night I cry out before you, Psalm 81, 1. Listen to my cries, for I am in desperate need, Psalm 142, verse 6. See, Jesus even prays this way. In Hebrews chapter 5, we're told of the intercession, intercession prayer life of Jesus, who offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the ones who could save them. This is the way that Jesus prays. Prayers, petitions, fervent cries, and tears to the one who can save them. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, he saw the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it because of their disobedience and because their hearts were far from God. Also look that Jesus never refuses a beggar. Anyone who desperately cries out to him in the gospels, he always hears their cry and answers their prayer. Lepers, the blind, the Gentiles, the ones far from him, the demon-possessed, Jesus comes through for the desperate beggar. They shouted, Matthew 20, verse 31, they shouted louder and louder for the coming of Jesus. And the early church, they were known for praying in the exact same way. We shouldn't be surprised by that, but they were praying in the exact same way. And the community was gathered in the upper room before Jesus poured out his spirit on Pentecost. They were gathered together in prayer. And they earnestly prayed to God for the release of Paul in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 13, the elders at Antioch were fasting, worshiping, and lifting up and ministering to the Lord. And that's when the spirit of God poured out again. In Romans 15:30, Paul calls the Romans church, the Roman church, who at the time he had never met. And he says, Hey, by the love of the Holy Spirit, join me in my struggle. That word in my struggle literally means to agonize with me by praying to God with me. We're also learning in Romans 8:28 that the Spirit intercedes with us with for us with wordless groans. And then, of course, Revelation. Three separate times in Revelation, the only recorded prayer of the Holy Spirit is just one word, come. And then the bride, that is us, the collective church, we join in with the prayer of the Holy Spirit. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. David Thomas concludes by saying this, the Bible seems utterly unfamiliar with casual prayer. Utterly unfamiliar with casual prayer. Prayer of the mouth and not the heart. Travail. A kind of burdened, focused pressing seems closer to the throbbing core of prayer in Scripture. 
And I just could not resonate more deeply than anything on planet Earth than that. And I just want to invite you into that kind of, that style of prayer in the prayer room. That's why it's urgent. Maybe you don't feel the desperation like I feel it. And that's okay. I'm not asking you to, to conjure anything up in your spirit. But the reality is for our kids, for our grandkids to live in a society where they will have friends who also follow after Jesus, we are out of time. And it is time to pray with fervency for the next great awakening. It's time for another Jesus movement. I'm seeing many, many people here in this room who were saved, a part of the Jesus movement, late 1960s, 1970s. And that was another movement that was forged through prayer, holiness, scripture, and worship. And that's exactly what we're pressing into in the prayer room. Cool story. Uh, This is, I promise, how I end. Um, Just this week, um, I got a fallout invite to go to this amazing prayer conference in San Francisco. And it was very last minute. My friend Brooke invited me to go. And I was like, "Ah, if I move my haircut and one other thing, I think I can. And it's like not a hard sell for me. I'm like, a prayer conference in San Francisco? Heck yeah, let's do this. And um, I got to meet David Thomas, the guy that I was just quoting. PhD, church history. He spent his whole doctoral thesis studying patterns of prayer leading up to great awakenings throughout church history. He also is a prof at Asbury. You're familiar, last year around this time, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Asbury. And he was there at this conference to simply just testify to what God did. So humbly, it was, it was stunning. I, I, was, I was stunned by his humility and by the way that they stewarded that outpouring at Asbury. And he, uh, I, I don't have time to share with you the whole, the whole, everything that he shared, but it was absolutely remarkable. Whatever you read about the Asbury revival, whatever YouTube video you watched from the critiques of it or whatever, just, just know that you don't fully know what God was doing in that moment. And, it, and let me tell you, the stories that are coming out of that are absolutely profound. Gen Z crying out for God to move with power in our time from uncelebrated title-less leaders. It was amazing. So anyways, this guy, David Thomas, um, he spent his entire life, many, many years, decades, really, uh, praying for this kind of revival. And then he was one of the very few who stewarded that outpouring at Asbury from the basement of a 150-year-old chapel. And I totally monopolized his time. I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to meet this guy again. I am going to corner him. And I was like, one question, and it turned into 20. Um, But I told him about you guys. I told him about what God was stirring in us. I told him that a lot of our artwork and the things that inspired our prayer room actually was kind of from that outpouring last year. And he was humbled by that. And then I told him a little bit about our context here in Bend. And, And I said, how would you talk to our family about spiritual awakening. And he, would, he, and he said this, he thought about it for a second, he said, you know, it's actually uh, 
it's actually kind of difficult in places like Bend. Because he said, revivals have never come from cities of power. It's never come from D.C. It's never come from Rome. Awakenings, revivals have come from the cries of the poor. And the hurting. And the broken and the marginalized. Old ladies who can barely move, crying out from their beds all night long for God to move with power. And so he said, yeah, it's actually, it, it's, it's really tough in places like Bend. He said, he said to me, he gave me a few pastoral warnings. And he said, don't, don't you let that city turn your heart. You stay focused on that call that God's given you to pray for spiritual awakening. But he said, this is what you need to start praying for your church. You need to pray for Bend that our church would have a chosen desperation. A chosen desperation. See, the lie, because we woke up with heat in our houses and a uh, refrigerator full of food, the lie is that we are not as desperate as the fentanyl addict or the person growing up in the developing world who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. But really... We are all in desperate, dire need for the salvation of God, for the grace of God, for his mercy to be poured out on us. You and I need God in the exact same powerful, supernatural way than anyone else on this planet. And the Patagonia kind of fools us. The luxury SUVs, they kind of fool us. We need a chosen desperation. He says the best way to cultivate that is through fasting and prayer. Because in, with fasting, within a couple of days, you become like that kid in Africa who is burning inside for their next meal. He says, that's, that's what you ought to do. Meanwhile, at the same time, I had another conversation with a guy there at the prayer conference. I met him several times. His name's Bruno. He's this Brazilian man, a business owner in the heart of San Francisco, incredible guy. And um, he came around the corner. And I, I locked eyes. Like, Bruno, good to see you, man. And the, since the last time I saw him, he had lost about 40 pounds. He looked completely different, like a completely different man. I was like, bro, you look good. What are you doing? What's your secret? He goes, well, Mark, our pastor told us that we were going to be doing this event of seeking God for spiritual awakening in the Bay Area, which everyone says is God forsaken. And I decided that I was going to fast for, for 21 days that God would pour out his spirit over the Bay. So I've been praying. I haven't broken the fast yet. I'm going to break the fast after this conference is over. And I hope the spirit of God is poured out over you in this time. Business owner, wonderful man of God, doesn't have a platform. No one invited him to speak. He's not in the spotlight. He's in, he's in the front row on his face and urgently with ferocity praying for a great awakening in the West Coast of the United States in the 21st century. We need some Brunos around here. We need some people who have that level of urgency 
We need some people who are willing to choose desperation. Yeah, I got the luxury SUV. I got the Patagonia. I got a refrigerator full of food. I got everything that I need. I can go through life just perfectly fine. But I am, I am desperate for a move of God in our time. I, heaven can't wait. It can't wait. We got to seek him. This is the time. So we need some Brunos in here. We need, we need a community of people who are willing to sow in tears. And I think that's what our calling is here at Riverbend. And I just want to simply invite you into that. Would you join us in contending for the next spiritual great awakening on the west coast of, of, of the United States? Let's do it together. Let's stand and let's pray. I just want to encourage you to hold your hands out in front of you. And, our, and, our, and the object or the, the, the purpose of this moment is to turn our hearts fully to the Lord. I can, I can sense the resonance in the room. Maybe you can see why I was a little bit nervous before we started. I said some things that were a bit challenging for us to hear. But I do sense a resonance here in the room. Someone needs to answer this call to pray fervently and urgently for the next great awakening. We don't need everyone. We need a few of you. We need as many of you who will answer. To say heaven can't wait can't wait another couple decades trying to figure it out in our own strength raising up great preachers who don't know how to pray putting out a lot of media and entertainment that has Christian themes but that hasn't been birthed in the prayer room you want to sing songs of joy don't you you want to sing songs of victory you want to mean it from your heart that you have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You want to say to your kids, yeah, you've tasted and that you've seen that the Lord is good. Seen God reverse trends. Have seen God break the power of evil. Have seen God bring victory, bring salvation to souls. I've seen God heal. I've seen God prophesy. I've heard God's voice. I know what his heart looks like. I know what it feels like. I know what it sounds like. I know how to fall on my face before God in prayer and seek Him as the one thing that my life is aimed at. You want to be able to pass that on. So I just invite you to choose desperation. Choose it. I do need you, Lord Jesus. I need you. find yourself just holding your breath waiting for the next part of the service to just kind of be done and over I I get it I I like to have a clear plan and stick to it 
but one of the core principles of the Asbury Awakening was what David Thomas calls a theology of lingering. Which is to say, Jesus, you have the room. I'm not in charge. The clock doesn't dictate the spirit of God moving. And so I just invite you, if you're holding your breath, just exhale and inhale again. And join in with the Spirit who says, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. know if this is a word from the Spirit, but it may be. And there's something that happened to me on the beach of Maui, and that is that my heart was catalyzed for this. And I couldn't wake up tomorrow and choose something different. This is just too deep in my bones. He has taken up residence in me. And that is not a uh, brag. It is just purely God's grace. And the word that's coming to my mind is that there's some people in the room who are feeling like, oh my gosh, yeah, I come here and I, and I hear that from time to time. And I just like, there's something in my heart that leaps out of me and I go, yeah, I want that. And then God has your attention while you're here and while you're here, you're like, you're going, oh yeah, that's it. You're it, Lord Jesus. I want your presence. And then you leave and by Tuesday, there's like your heart is like being pulled in all of these different directions. And that's, that's just part of life. But I think what God is saying is, ask me and I will catalyze your heart for my kingdom. Ask me to make this your one thing, and I'll do it. I'll make your heart catch fire, and there won't be anything left for you besides just seeking his kingdom first and only, and seeking his presence. And this is something we almost never do, but I just, want to invite you if you feel like that's what God is saying to you he's like asking you if you want him to catalyze your heart for awakening and for his kingdom then I would just invite you to put your hand up yeah there's so so many hands going up so we're just reaching to him we're just reaching to you Jesus and I just encourage you, those of you who haven't raised your hands, that's okay. Some of you are, are like way far down this journey already. So there's zero, zero shame for having your hands up or having your hands down. But what I do want to encourage is just right now 
for those of you who are saying, God, catalyze my heart for your kingdom and for your presence, I would just invite the others of you in the room to just, to just lay hands on them. And can I specifically have like our, some of our core leaders who are just around, would you just take over as like ministry partners with us right now and just lay hands on people around you? And let's pray this in together. The, the charismatics of which we are like adjacent to, <laughs> they say, pray it in, pray it in, pray it in. My, my mentor, Phil, would probably message this message quite differently than the way I just messaged it to you now. He's a different leader, but I have so much admiration and respect for him. And I think he's been a part of leading one of the greatest, you know, moves of God in the last hundred years in Oregon. I think it will go down in the history books in some way, shape, or form. He was saved in the Jesus movement, and he has become like a spiritual father to me. And again, he would, he would probably say everything that I just said to you quite differently, but it's coming from that exact heart of wanting to see the fame of Christ spread in our region. And here he is laying hands on our brothers and sisters, and I invite you to do a lot of the same. Would you just reach around and would you just pray in with me a catalyzation of our hearts for the kingdom of God and for the presence of Jesus? Let's just pray out loud together in one voice on the count of three. One, two, three. So Jesus, we just thank you uh, for inviting us. Thank you for inviting us, God, into your family. Thank you for uh, even just when we lack will and when we lack desire and when we lack hunger, that you are actually willing to even pour that out as well, faith for what you are doing. And so I just pray over my brothers and sisters right now in the name of Jesus. Would you come in, in great power? Would you catalyze our hearts? for your kingdom and for you, Jesus? Would there only be one thing that our heart is oriented towards and would it be you and you only, Lord? And we just profess and, and cry out in your name that we are, we do need you and we do love you and we are excited to follow after you. We are anticipating your move and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's, let's sing, let's, let's worship the Lord.